Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is Bloomberg Intelligence. We're really getting into now the streaming arms race. This is looking at that and saying we can really build a nice niche for ourselves. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. The dollar is the dominant content in the planet. I think the acquisition is a natural progression of what Microsoft can do with this technology going forward. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Over the next hour, we're going to dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global market. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Today, we're going to take a look at how a rally in European natural gas prices may have implications beyond 2021. Plus, BI's beverage survey shows consumers have shifted where they drink, along with some of the beverage choices. Like wine to wine, what kind of color your wine is. Okay, but first we're going to start with some banks. So JP Morgan kicks off earnings season on October 13th. It's really not that far away. Let's break down where these banks are sitting, particularly as the yield curve steepens here. Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Allison Williams joins us now. Allison, how are banks set up right now? So I think the key focus for banks is going to be when are interest rates going to rise. That's really, um, I think, where you're going to get the biggest earnings leverage, or I guess the next stage of earning leverage for the largest U.S. banks. They're generally set up to benefit from a rise in short-term interest rates. And while that's not expected until late next year, um, you know, some of the recent, um, you know, basically the dot plot that we got um, from the Fed recently, I think, um, increase some optimism that that could happen sort of on, on the sooner side, and that would be very positive for banks. So how much do rates have to go up before or, or the curve steepen before we start seeing it in the, in the banks' numbers? We've had a, you know, short of the past couple of weeks, we've had rates, you know, lift modestly. But I mean, how much do we have to go before we get a real impact? So I think, you know, there's there's sort of the fundamental impact to earnings, and then there's obviously what the stocks uh, will respond to, um, as, as you know. And so I think that um, just to the extent that we start to see the end um, or, or the light at the end of the, the tunnel, that in general um, will be viewed positively, um, you know, from the stock perspective. From an earnings perspective, you know, Based on the disclosures, if rates rise by 100 basis points, a parallel shift in the curve 
we can get a five to ten percent lift to revenue. So obviously, uh, we don't expect to get 100 basis points in one clip. We think that'll happen over time. But the positive thing for interest rates is that that basically goes down to the bottom line. And so um, as we wait for that, we're all focused on loan growth. That's what we'll be focusing on uh, with the upcoming earnings reports and sort of the trajectory there. Um, But loan growth comes with some costs. There's operating costs. There's credit costs. So, Allison, if we do think we're going into a rising rate environment and which is generally obviously good news for the banks do I do I focus on some of the banks with the big lending portfolios as opposed to the ones that rely more on investment banking I'm thinking Wells Fargo B of A uh, those types of names it is obviously um, a better environment for those two types of banks the, the companies that tend to be more net interest um, in, interest income or have that bigger benefit are among the big banks that I cover, Wells Fargo and Bank of America. So these banks, um, their top line can benefit 9 to 10% from a 100 basis point parallel shift. So that's, you know, more than companies like Citi, mm-hmm. uh, J.P. Morgan, and, and Goldman Sachs. Also, because they earn less from trading, they haven't had the benefit over the last couple of years. But I would say to the extent that um, we continue to speculate around rates, and there's a lot of question and uncertainty that can continue to add to trading businesses. Um, so that can be also very powerful to those banks that have, um, you know, trading capital market focused businesses. Of course, we've had a really robust 2020 and 2021. Before I let you go, I want to ask about comp because I feel like the theme That's of the last quarter oh, was it. <laughs> I stole it. Um, the theme of the last quarter was the junior bankers making more, making yeah. more. I think it was Morgan Stanley that actually raised it twice. Um, I mean, always look at their comp ratio, and I wonder like how you're going to be reading it. So the stories, uh, you know, obviously the junior banking stories are very prevalent. But again, I think this goes to the cost of compete. And I do think, to your point, $100,000 ain't going to make or break Morgan Stanley. (laughs) Well, it's indicative of what's happening across the bank, I think. And I think this is going to be a very different story um, than it was in 2020 when we're looking at comp and ratios. So in 2020, when we saw this huge flourish in the markets, um, you know, a lot of the the money was made um, through electronic trading and things like that. And in general, we saw comp ratios actually decline. This year, I, I don't think that's going to be the case for, and there's two key reasons. So, so first of all, because the environment has been a little bit different and the focus on what I call like the comp- more compensation uh, focused businesses. So investment banking, uh, M&A, IPOs, et cetera, don't use as much capital as trading, but they're higher compensation ratio. So just mathematically, um, we're going to see that um, sort, of, sort of level up. And then just to the extent that you know, at the end of 2020, people expected things to normalize. That didn't happen. We've had a really strong year. Um, just the cost to compete is higher. And investment banks are not just competing with each other for talent. They're competing with hedge funds. They're competing with tech firms. Mm-hmm. We have the war on fintech. And so I do think that, um, you know, compensation ratios are going to be higher this year. Um, the good news is that returns 
um, can still be very robust. Really, it's going to be really fun. I'm excited. All right, Allison Williams, Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, Senior Analyst for Banking. Thank you very much. Coming up on the program, European gas prices are poised to remain high heading into winter. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 13 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's switch gears and talk energy. We have oil prices, gas prices, energy prices moving higher. It's definitely a concern as we head into the winter. Let's bring on Bloomberg Intelligence analyst Patricio Alvarez. Patricio, let's talk nat gas uh, here. Uh, I think it's the highest it's been since 2014. Talk to us about the market. Where are we right now? How did we get here? Sure. Um, so we are at a seven-year high in the U.S., but it, the situation is a lot worse than Europe. We'll, we've been seeing all-time highs for the past uh, two weeks, if, if I'm not wrong. So we've seen prices in Europe uh, quadruple um, since January, and they are about five times um, uh, the, the average price for this time of the year over the past five years. Um, so how did we get here? I think the main uh, the main driver behind the surge in prices in Europe is uh, the low uh, gas storage stockpiles. Um, as as we all know, the the summer season is when um, you're supposed to fill up your storage levels. But a strong demand for LNG in Asia, especially China, uh, drove LNG cargoes away from Europe. And this combined with weather events that saw outages in Norway and the UK and the declining output from the Netherlands, so no respite to, to this storage depletion uh, during during the summer. This is how we ended up now with this struggle. We were about 20% below the norm for this mm -hmm. year in terms of storage levels. And the fear is that we are not going to be able to replenish uh, before the winter. And the main catalyst being um, either more availability for LNG or higher uh, flows from Russia. Um, I love this topic, by the way, which I know I it comes as a complete surprise <laughs> to everybody. Um, so my, my first basic question is, well, it, it's twofold. One, if, it's, if it gets cold, if it's really cold... What kind of storage levels are we looking like? What kind of deficits are we looking like in Europe specifically? Because UK is a bit different. It has some logistical issues. If it's warm, what are we looking like? Okay, uh, that, that's the biggest question because I think moving forward, uh, forward our, our view is that everything uh, hinges on the weather. Um, so if we enter into a, a colder than average winter, um, the, the fear is that we'll enter uh, with storage capacity at about 80% maybe. So that's still 10% below the, the, the five-year norm. And we may actually end up um, spending the winter through April and depleting almost uh, all of the storage, uh, meaning almost to zero. Um, this will obviously offer more uh, upside price risk for, for nat gas uh, and probably more volatility moving forward. Um, so that's the worst case scenario is if we have a cold winter here in Europe and a cold winter in Asia, especially, uh, that will leave no LNG uh, cargo spare uh, to be drawn into Europe. So that, that creates a situation that is, is, it is a bit concerning. Um, on the other end, if we have a mild winter, not even a warm one, just a mild, uh, we get this window of opportunity to sort of replenish um, storage levels 
elevate uh, prices will be elevated uh, through the winter that that seems to be the the, the consensus on that because we don't see any sort of upside flows of either from Russia or L- or significantly from LNG. Um, Norway has uh, raised their output by if I have about five percent, which is which helps a little bit ease the pressure. So in the best case scenario, we would see prices come down a little bit, though still remain elevated through the winter. But it gives us the chance um, to refill the storage during the summer of next year. Mm-hmm. So that that will signal that we will go back to normal, more normal price ranges uh, by the summer. All right. So that's kind of the longer term outlook, weather dependent. That makes it a little bit dicey. How about near term? I'm seeing reports that, hey, part of the problem is we just can't get enough truck drivers to get the gas where it needs to go. Is that is that kind of what we're seeing, at least in the U.K.? Yes. Um, so that that's uh, more um, going on to the, the, the gasoline distribution uh, side. Um, our colleagues here uh, that cover that, that sort of refining uh, downstream side of things, they, they see this as a, as a short-term uh, supply shock. And this is mainly driven by a shortage in truck drivers. Um, we've seen no outages um, in, the refinery, in the refining plants here in Europe. It is not a structural uh, problem. It is more uh, a shock uh, because of the shortage of drivers. And we see this resolving near term within the next uh, month or so. We, we don't expect uh, this to last longer term. Um, my, my question here is, where's the U.S.? Because the rhetoric, I mean, I'm going back 18 months, was that the world was going to be awash in natural gas. The U.S. was going to export like bananas. Um, and we have so much gas here that we're overflowing and that was going to happen and drove LNG prices down. What happened to that thesis? So that, that thesis should still play out uh, in the midterm. We've seen a few outages um, in, in the U.S. Uh, sort of constraining the LNG, the, the growth in LNG that we expected um, to see this year. So in, in broad terms, the LNG market, the global LNG market has been relatively flat this year with the exception of the U.S. But we've seen that uh, lower storage levels in the U.S. have also put pressure on the, on the export capacity. Uh, although we, we do see this sort of easing in, into 2022 when we see a few um, additions by, by Chenier. So um, that's uh, the U.S.'s biggest uh, LNG exporter, and we see that as a catalyst, but, but not definitely not near term. We see uh, the U.S. also sort of um, facing this short-time um, supply shock. Uh, as you can also, as, as Paul mentioned, this is what is driving also the, 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 the seven-year uh, price high uh, on natural gas prices in the U.S. as well. So, Patricia, when in so many industries around the world and from so many companies, we hear about the global supply chain challenges impacting their businesses. Is that part of the problem here? There is enough nat gas out there, perhaps, but we just can't get it where it's needed? So um, that, that's uh, that's a great point. So as um, as in, uh, we we believe that it's uh, it's mostly uh, a supply side uh, driven um, trajectory trend uh, so far is just this coupled with uh, with an uneven demand. So we saw Asia uh, jump back, kickstart the economy first um, after the pandemic, and we've also seen. Um, other other events um, sort of um, give us this uh, uneven demand uh, jolt through through the economy, and this plus the, the outages and sort of the result of the underinvestment in fossil fuels 
both during the pandemic and, and even before that, we've seen no growth in upstream spending. We've seen very low uh, rig, uh, rig counts, and this have, this, these have not picked up this year. So it, it's both a combination of, of low output and, and declining output in mm-hmm. general, plus an uneven and but marked um, recovery in demand. All right, Patricia, a really fascinating story. We'll keep our eyes on Nat Gas and all things energy. Our thanks to Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Patricio Alvarez. All right, coming up on the program, as pandemic restrictions have eased, consumers are changing the way they're drinking stuff and their beverage choices. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. It's 25 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. We'll be here each and every week at this time, tapping into our Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst, covering some 2,000 companies and 130 industries worldwide. All right. So as we're sort of migrating out of the depths of the pandemic, we're still changing how things like what we eat, what we buy, what we spend on, what we drink. So let's break it down with Ken Shea, Bloomberg Intelligence, a senior industry analyst. There's lots to focus on with this, but I think it'd be fun to go with the beverage choices. What were we drinking 18 months ago? Yeah, hi, Alex. So, um, you know, at this juncture in time where uh, the pandemic is easing and consumers are 
getting off their couch and going out to the bars and restaurants again. We thought it would be a good time to find out. So what are they drinking anyway? You know, some of the results. <laughs> we love this theme. Uh, <laughs> some of the results that we found in our proprietary Bloomberg consumer survey didn't surprise us too much. Consumers still love their bottled water, their hot tea and coffee, and their sodas. But with, I guess, from a non-alcoholic beverage side, uh, still some of the um, lingering pandemic pressures seem to be still muting uh, performance for energy drinks, sports drinks, things that would benefit from people being up and about. So when I buy a soft drink, for example, do I just, I'm trying to think, I think I'm just a brand guy. I mean, is that kind of what you find? Or do, or do people say there's something else besides the brand that I care about? <laughs> you know, that's really spot on to what um, the survey helped us find, Paul. What we found is that although the pandemic prompted U.S. consumers to change where they consume beverages, which in turn affected some of their choices made, it, it doesn't appear to have materially altered their preferences with regard to brands, you know, the benefits people seek in their beverages, or even their attitudes on trying new products. So you're right. Brand strength remains strong, particularly for wine and beer that we found. Surprisingly, it was a little lower than we would have expected for alcoholic beverages. But again, our read is that, you know, there may be some lingering pandemic things going on here. Wine and beer tends to be consumed more at home and more so, you know, alcoholic beverages. I mean, uh, spirits tends to be um, consumed more at the bars. So we think, you know, that's going to tick up a little bit. Uh, Alex, I bet you didn't know, but Ken is my weed guy. Oh, yeah, no, I knew that. Yeah, he covers all things uh, cannabis for Bloomberg Intelligence. So I want to go to the CBD-infused beverage market. Is that a thing? Is it something I need to pay pay, pay attention to? You know, I didn't think it was as big a thing as a survey told us. Um, You know, it's in small markets, um, or I should say sporadic markets. You know, it still uh, is illegal in some markets. you know, the states will say, the states where marijuana uh, is legal, they'll say, look, if you don't promote it as, you know, having specific health benefits, we'll kind of look the other way. <laughs> I think it's the way it's kind of treated. But what the survey told us was that 22% of the respondents said they've actually tried CBD products and would do so again. Interestingly, 17% of respondents said they've tried THC-based products. Now, for those people who are not in the cannabis world, CBD is non, a non-intoxicating cannabinoid. THC is what gets you, gets you high. So, again, these are not widespread national products, but on a state by, in a state-by-state, legal-state basis, you can find these products, and they're being consumed more than I would have thought they would be. Hmm. Um, so it, it Do you think, though, Ken, market. does that go away like when we really get past COVID? I mean, I don't know if we actually know what getting past COVID looks like, but let's just pretend that everyone goes out and doesn't need it at home anymore. Like, does that go away? Like, will that ever be consumed in bars and restaurants? It probably would not be. Uh, I, at least I don't envision it in the near term. Um, but, you know, I think those are products that just have unique characteristics about that people like. I mean, you know, people say to me, you know, can, how big can the cannabis market grow? I say, we were talking about legal cannabis, right? We already know that people consume cannabis. I think with, it's already understood that it's a roughly a $60 billion industry in the U.S. Now, that's that's mostly illicit, you know, uh, unregulated sales. But we know the demand is there. It, you know, when it comes to cannabis, it's just a matter of, you know, tapping into that um, illicit market with legal sales. And I think we're getting closer and closer to it. And uh, the CBD and THC uh, products of cannabis are just hitting a, the tip of the iceberg of what they could be uh, in, in a legal federal market someday. Hey, Kent, 
just want to get a sense of, you know, as people maybe go back out, out of the house, back to the restaurants and bars, if I'm Budweiser, do I care whether Paul Sweeney buys a can of Budweiser in a liquor store to drink at home or a can of Budweiser at the local tavern? Well, the tavern owner certainly wants you there. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting that um, these companies, you know, they'll, they'll cater to both markets, but I, I would argue the, the spirits manufacturer um, it tends to... Uh, prefer that you buy it at the bar. I mean, it's a better business for them because, you know, it's less marketing, there's less sharing with the retail, that kind of thing. So they would prefer the more stable business of catering to bars and restaurants than try to, you know, compete in the more competitive, you know, liquor store around the corner. Do you really drink Budweiser, Paul? In cans. That is the house brew. If you don't like it, bring your own. That's fair. That's fair. You get to bring your own. All right, Ken, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Uh, Ken Shea joining us from Bloomberg Intelligence. Coming up on the program, a surge in streaming is fueling growth in the music industry. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 39 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Well, Universal Music Group had a solid couple weeks of trading as a public company. Um, Vivendi still owns about a 10% stake, um, but about two weeks ago, it was the first day of trading on the Euronext Amsterdam Exchange, and shares were up by 43% uh, for that week. So is this music world back? Like, I come from the world where I had, like, mixed tapes. So what's in store for this uh, industry here? Matthew Bloxham uh, covers telecom, media, and internet. He's senior industry analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Okay, Matthew, is my era back? Not quite, although vinyl is actually making uh, a bit of a comeback. Uh, yeah, overall physical sales are down quite a bit, but uh, vinyl was up almost 25% in revenue terms last year. Um, I know it's very popular here in London. Um, there are actually a few markets like Germany and Japan where uh, CDs are still very popular, but you know, ultimately the, the, the story here really is, uh, is streaming, uh, which is uh, on a huge growth tear. You know, it was uh, undimmed by the pandemic. Uh, streaming revenues were up about 20% last year. Uh, they've continued to grow this year too, and uh, there's about a, just over 100 million new paid subscribing subscriptions um, last year, and that's really you know, the, what's going to drive the growth going forward. So, you know, we, we think that the street, that well, the music revenue in total could expand 30 to 40 percent around the world in the next five years, uh, so to hit something like 28 to 30 billion dollars. So, you know, there's uh, still a lot of growth potential to come from this industry. Yeah, Matthew, to put that into context for people, uh, this was a business that for nearly a generation, literally for 19 years, um, music uh, revenues declined as people were burning CDs and the Napster Mm. growth. And and now we've had a few years of growth. But the business is different today than when we were young, right, Matthew? You don't really own music, you rent it. That's right, yeah, um, which has been uh, an amazing success story, obviously, for the platforms like Spotify, but for uh, music companies like Universal. I think that's why there's such appetite for Universal and, to some degree, uh, Warner Music, too, which listed last year because, you know, they've transformed a one-time 
purchase and all that piracy um, into a recurring revenue stream um, and, you know, finding lots and lots of new ways to monetize uh, that music, you know, not just through the streaming platforms, but working with people like Peloton, for example, and the gaming companies to license the music in, into those platforms too. So, yeah, it's been great. And obviously, with, with every dollar you make on a streaming platform, you, you don't have the same costs involved in printing uh, CDs or vinyl. So the margins uh, are substantially higher. Oh, that's a really good point. Um, this is going to be a silly question, but how do the artists make money in that I know that the they music industry... Don't. What? They, they don't, don't, right? Because, <laughs> I mean, yeah. has the music industry transformed at all since, you know, back in the day where basically these the label makers had all the control? Um, not much. And actually, in the research we've been publishing in the last week or so, we have delved into the kind of business model. And as you say, you know, incredibly complex. It, cha- it changes from country to country. Some of it's tied up in copyright law. Some of it's just negotiation. But you know, the, the, the bottom line with a lot of like the, it is with a lot of industries, if you take the total pot, uh, it splits roughly a third, a third, a third. So the streaming platforms like Spotify keep about a third of the revenues. Uh, the music labels keep about a third. And the other third goes to the rest. Now, the that the recording artists make take most of that final third, but it's shared with people that are, you know, the songwriters, the people that do the lyrics, the publishers. So, you know, the artists are definitely kind of a long way down the food chain. And unfortunately, some artists that signed their contracts years ago are still stuck with very, very thin cuts, which were based on the physical era. It's only, you know, the kind of more recent, you know, the big stars like Drake, Taylor Swift, those kind of guys that have renegotiated deals where maybe they get 15 to 20% of the total pot. But some artists are only getting Getting, you know, two, three, four percent. Uh, those contracts just haven't changed with the times. So, Matthew, give us a sense of the, the, this industry makeup. Is there? Is it just a handful of? big labels or do we have still in independent labels out there? How's it structured? Uh, there's a long tail of independent labels, but basically about 70% of the recorded music market is made up of three so-called mm-hmm. music majors, so Universal, Warner, and Sony. And out of those three, Universal is by far and away the biggest, has about 30% uh, of the market. Um, and if you look at last year's Billboard, uh, basically you know, they, they accounted for nine out of the top 10 artists by sales around the world so they they've they been dominant last year but that that dominance has been there for you know kind of five or six years so they're you know really the, the go-to label if you're a big artist um th- and then you've got this kind of group called merlin uh, which is basically an association for smaller labels and they kind of negotiate in bulk for them with people like spotify but yes it's a really concentrated market all right, Matthew, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Matthew Bloxham, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst. All right, let's stay with the music industry. It's finally growing again. The question now is how do people consume m- music? Back in the day, you bought your music, you owned the music. Now we just kind of rent it through these streaming apps. Let's check in with Amin Bensad. He is a media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Amin, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about, like, the Spotify's of the world. I mean, they stream music. Talk to us about their business model and how they fit into this music ecosystem. Absolutely, and thanks for having me. So I think uh, Spotify is the largest uh, audio um, 
platform. And I say audio because all of, the, of these major players now, they're shifting from being called a music uh, platform to an audio platform because not only they want to offer you the music, they want to offer you podcasts or anything related to, to music in order to grow uh, their bottom line. So yes, Spotify has been ahead of the game many years ago. Uh, they are the largest platform. But in the same time, we have other uh, tech players like Apple and YouTube also, uh, and even Amazon also trying to catch up to Spotify in this ecosystem. So that's the major dynamic there. Subscription is still the major driver for revenue for these guys. Uh, Spotify is an example. It's around uh, 90% of sales, mm-hmm. but advertising also has been picking up. We were just talking uh, to Matt Bloxham um, about how this, all these areas get paid, right? Like a third go to the artist, a third go to streaming, and then a third go to the record label. Um, when you get a Spotify that gets that third of the payment from me, for example, um, where does it go? Like, what do my margins look like? Uh, so for Spotify, it's a very good question also. So for Spotify, typically for the music industry, and that's why, uh, by the way, they shift in the narrative from music to audio uh, uh, platform. Typically, as you mentioned, about 70% of the revenue that uh, a platform like Spotify makes goes either to the labels or the rights holders. Uh, and that's, that 30% typically is what they get. Now, because of these negotiations that they have with the, with the labels take many years and there is not that much leeway, uh, you've seen margins have improved uh, in the last few years. But podcasts is the way for them to really try to uh, improve that margin because with podcasts, you own the content. And when you own the content, the margins are significantly better. So that's why they're trying to push into moving away from the just music uh, platform to an audio platform where you have an opportunity to improve your margins. So I know one of the drivers here for top line revenue growth for Spotify is kind of migrating people from the advertising supported, you know, no fee plan to the paid plan. Talk to us about how that happens and, and, and what are the, some of their strategies to, to increase that percentage? Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, this is a good point because when you look at what happened with the Epic uh, and Apple case, it all relates to this, which is uh, if you're a new user, uh, you can use Spotify on Apple uh, on any iPhone and then you're counted as a free uh, or advertising supported user. Now, if you want to subscribe at this point of time, you cannot, you have to go outside the platform. Now that's really what it says that Apple will have to allow apps like Spotify to allow for, to have the access to show their own external payments, right, in their app. And if I'm a new user, I can use Spotify's external payment and, uh, and subscribe. Now, to answer your question, historically, around 60% of premium customers or paying customers on Spotify's platform came from their own advertising supported product, right? And as I mentioned earlier, over 90% of sales for Spotify are paid and advertising is only 10%. So that's why we think this case could be very important for Spotify because if they can have their own payment system, if they can connect directly to that free customer and have direct communication, providing them with more promotions and a way to convert them to paid, that could change uh, the dynamics for Spotify on the other platform and improve their bottom line. Why? I, I guess the question is, you know, I'm looking at the stock down 27%. Is that simply reflecting that, hey, the lockdown's over, people are going to go back to normal behavior and they might not, you, you know, listen to as much music? 
Yes, part of it is that. The other part of it, last year, the stock not only increased significantly, uh, but uh, because, you know, people were mostly a lot... Uh, basically, the narrative has changed where people were at home and also listening to music and podcasts. But the main reason why the shares uh, surged last year was because investors understood that there is a way for Spotify to be to improve their profitability, which is with podcasts, right? Uh, and improving the margins there. Now, when the margin story was clear, that's why shares were improving. But at the end of the day, when you look at the podcast industry in the U.S., it's only about a billion dollars, right? Mm. And it's still growing. Spotify is a big part of that. But still, for that to impact the bottom line for the whole company, it's going to take many years. And I think maybe uh, there was an overreaction into thinking this is going to, something is going, like podcasts, for instance, are going to improve uh, margins in the near term. So that's why we see some of the moderation, but also, like you said, mm. um, you know, a, a delay of commuting and things of that sort that mm -hmm. you know, are not uh, good for Spotify. All right, that's a good deep dive on the music business of today. It's streaming, Spotify, good stuff. I mean, Ben Saad, Bloomberg Intelligence Media Analyst. Really interesting. All right, that's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. It's 57 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.